Hey everyone, it's Brett here. I hope you're having a great holiday season. I know for many of us, it looks pretty different this year, but I still hope you're getting some well-deserved rest and reconnecting virtually with friends and family. Since it's the end of the year, my co-founder, Alex Blumenstein, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to do some reflection and record a year in review. So this is going to be a special edition of the Peak Weekly. In this conversation, we're going to cover details about the failures and learnings from our past business, how and why the Peak was founded, and our growth plans for the year ahead, including a midway check-in on our financing round. It's a pretty free-flowing conversation, but hopefully gives you a unique look at what it's like to build a media business from the ground up. So without further ado, here's this week's special edition of the Peak Weekly. Hello, Alex. Hey, Brad. How are you? I am good. I'm good. So uh, this is going to be a quarterly, annual podcast. We're not sure. But the idea is just to talk about things going on in the business, kind of where we're at, uh, how we got there, just to update people on on kind of what's going on with the peak. And you know, anybody who is uh, new to the peak should know that we do like to share everything about how we're building this business. I think it's fun. It's, uh, you know, interesting to get people's feedback on different things that we're trying. And so we we do try to be as transparent as possible. Um, and this is going to be a bit of a free flowing conversation. So uh, I don't know, Alex, do you have anything else to, to add? No, I mean, this is our first time uh, doing this format. So bear with us and hopefully we'll get uh, we'll we'll get into the flow of things quickly. Um, we've we've potted before together in different variations, but we'll get into that. Uh, we'll get into that. Yeah. Uh, and I guess we should start, for those who don't know us, by introducing ourselves. So I'll let you go first. Sure. So uh, my name Alex Blumenstein. Uh, I'm one of the uh, co-founders of The Peak. Uh, prior to The Peak, Fred and I also worked together uh, as co-founders of Leaf Forward, which was a Canvas-focused venture fund and accelerator, and we'll get into that. Uh, before that, uh, I worked for a company called 48 North, uh, which is trained the TSX Venture Exchange. Uh, as NRTH. Uh, I was an early employee there, a cannabis company. Uh, and before that, I was in, uh, I worked for the mayor of Toronto. Uh, I worked in public affairs, uh, communications, media. Uh, I've done all sorts of things. Uh, and here we are today. Here we are, indeed. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Brett. I'm in Toronto. We're both in Toronto. Uh, I worked at with Alex only four before, and then before that, I was at Uber for a few years, and then it's I was also in politics. A public company, right? It's a public company. It's traded on the New York Stock Exchange uh, dollar sign Uber. Um, I'm no longer a shareholder, by the way, for full disclosure. <laughs> I don't know if you're still a shareholder of 48. I'm not. I'm not fully uh, fully exited that opportunity. That's great. Yeah, you got in private and you you sold public. Those are the rules. That's how you do it. That's how you be successful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and just to give a bit more context, uh, we met when you were uh, briefly studying at the University of Toronto. That's that's correct. I was on a uh, secondment there from my uh, from my studies at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. I the think, top I think business in Canada. Top One of the top business schools in Canada. I didn't actually go to that one of the top business schools in Canada. I was in the political science department. I did have several classes in the building that housed one mm. of the top business schools in Canada, though. So lots of uh, lots of exposure there to business thinking. 
Yeah, it is funny that, you know, we are in quote unquote business now, considering yeah. that none of us have uh, business backgrounds, including our, <laughs> our third co-founder, Taylor. Um, you know, we're all, uh, we're just arts grads. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Art is the best business. That's, uh, that's what I always say. Yeah. I've heard that before. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you know, to kind of give people an idea of how we got to the peak and where we are today, it's probably worth talking about our last endeavor, which was leaf forward. I don't know if you want to kind of elaborate on that and we can, we can talk through a bit of what happened. Sure. So, I mean, uh, Let's start at the beginning. We'll, we'll go through it quickly, I guess. So, I mean, uh, uh, Canada legalized cannabis uh, a couple of years ago. Prior to that, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau was elected in 2015. He said he was going to legalize cannabis. So we set out for ways to uh, be involved in that. Um, I was still working at a public affairs firm at the time, and we were trying to find uh, cannabis clients. We ended up representing uh, a group of dispensaries. So that was sort of like my first foray into the space. And then Brett came up with the idea of doing, a, of doing a meetup. So we sort of hosted our first meetup in January 2017. January 2017. 2017, yeah. Yeah. And Brett, do you want to kind of give us uh, the thinking behind that and how that came together? Yeah, like I think we just didn't really know what we could do and how we could participate. I think this is the biggest challenge from with our background uh, in uh, arts and public affairs and politics is that, you know, when we see business stuff, we didn't really know how we could get a, a cut of that. And so we kind of went through a bunch of different ideas about how we could participate in this new and nascent cannabis market. And you know, really the, the first idea, one of the first ideas we had was just to start running an event. You know, it doesn't take a lot. Uh, we know we could do it and it was a great opportunity for us to build our network. And that's exactly what happened. And so our first speaker, we had Vic Neufeld, who was the CEO of Afria at the time. And we just emailed him promising that there would be a bunch of great attendees there and it would be a good opportunity for him and the company. But at the time in 2017, it was still a very young, early stage for cannabis in Canada. And so everyone kind of knew each other. Um, and it was pretty easy to get people out. And so we had our first event with Vic. We probably had about, you know, 100 people, maybe 60, 50, 60 people come out. And it was a great success. And then from there, we just kept hosting them. And we did one every month, and they kept growing. I think at a certain point, we were getting, you know, 300 people out to each event, um, which was great. And then we wanted to find a way to capture some of the upside. So we built this network. Um, you know, we were selling tickets to these events, but it wasn't particularly lucrative. And we wanted to find a way that we could reorient our careers to, to cannabis. And then Alex kind of came up with the idea for Leaf Forward, the fund accelerator model. Yeah, I mean, basically, the, the genesis of that was that simply we had, you know, this network of entrepreneurs who are coming to our events, as well as people who were sort of involved in the industry, either working for some of the big cannabis producers or the professional services that, that, that service the industry. So we said, let's bring them together and start an accelerator. Um, so we did, uh, we hosted sort of two one day events uh, in partnership with the law firm uh, Minden Gross. Um, and then we uh, expanded that into a, week, a six week long of, uh, accelerator boot camp style thing. Uh, which we hosted with uh, Dentons and MNP. And then after that, we said, uh, let's kind of like really kind of prove this out one more time. And we held a cannabis boot camp weekend uh, where we had people really literally come in from coast to coast. We had people come in from, from BC to Newfoundland uh, for a weekend uh, in, in Denton's boardroom and had like 40 plus speakers. 
really just kind of like intimate and serious event, uh, helping people prep to start businesses in the cannabis space. Um, so from there, we said, okay, how do we like really take this to the next level and start start moving from like equity hold from like you know service providers to equity holders? Um, so we said, let's raise a fund. Um, so we set out to raise three million. Uh, we didn't. <laughs> so full disclosure, there we raised just a bit over a million. Our principal investors uh, were Green Acre Capital, who's a large uh, venture fund in the cannabis space. Uh, and then we had uh, Charno Group, which was sort of a family office, kind of being our second our second largest investor, uh, split through that family. Um, and then finally, we had a, an assortment of people who we had met either through the industry or people who we had in our network who who also invested to kind of round out that that million. So we I guess raised the, it, and the next story is how we spent it. <laughs> well, yeah, and I guess the thesis behind it was that, you know, we thought there would be this explosion of entrepreneurial activity in the Canadian cannabis industry. So once cannabis was legalized, we thought there would be a number of different types of businesses that would emerge from that, whether they be, um, you know, innovative microcultivators or brands or new products and accessories or product formats for cannabis that would kind of rise up uh, as the industry expanded and became more normalized throughout the country. And, uh, you know, I think one challenge that we saw a lot of the young or the newer entrepreneurs that were coming out to our events is that they just didn't have a lot of support. They couldn't find early stage capital. Nobody was willing to write them a small check. They were only willing to write big checks and they weren't at the stage where they could get a big check. They didn't have a lot of advice or it was hard to receive mentorship in the space because it was so new. And that's what we were trying to solve for. So we thought that with Alex's expertise in cannabis and our kind of broad expertise in public affairs and, and regulatory affairs, we could work with these companies to one, give them the capital they need to get started, but two, give them the support and advice they need to grow their business and become you know, one of the, a player in, in the space. And that, you know, we invested in, I think six companies, Alex, seven, seven companies. And we wrote checks, you know, check sizes in the range of 25 to, I don't know, 40,000, 75,000. 75, and yeah, and the model was kind of interesting in itself in that if you are familiar with the venture capital model or the fund model, it's a two and 20. And so you take 2% goes to the general partners, the people who are managing the firm that goes to them on an annual basis. So, you know, if you're Andreessen Horowitz and you have a you know $700 million fund, that 2%, that's, that's pretty good. You can pay yourself a good salary. You can build out a whole office of people to help you evaluate deals. But if you're raising a $1 million fund, it's very challenging. And then the 20% is the carry. And so if you have, after you've had a number of exits, what you do is you return all that money to the investors from the exit to investors to make up for what they invested. And then any additional earnings from that, you would take 20% as the managers of that fund. So that's the kind of model. And we took a different approach in that we would take a fee from the company so we would invest money into the company, then we would take a fee, which would fund the operations, but we would still keep the same amount of equity that we invested in uh, from the fund. And so that was the the model that we came up with so that we could finance the operations of it. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that that's that's correct. Um, and I think like maybe let's get into sort of how things kind of didn't work out exactly how we wanted. Like it's not over yet. We still have active companies and we still may end up with, you know, some returns, um, the, the, the book is not closed, but I think, you know, just to kind of fast forward a little bit and then we work backwards again, 
uh, at the beginning of this year, we actually made the decision to return the outstanding capital. So we were sitting on about another like half million dollars and we actually returned that to our investors because we found that it, it, it wasn't a good use for us to invest and we couldn't find any more opportunities. Um, so at sort of, uh, let's start at like the micro level of kind of what went wrong with, with the investments we made. And I think at like a very basic way of looking at it is just like, we, we're five years too early. Like, I don't think, I think there will be an ecosystem of startups in the cannabis space five years from now. So we were like seven years too early, um, which basically led us to, you know, finding people who were, you know, passionate, had great ideas, but it just, it just wasn't time yet. Like we started, we, we chose the companies before cannabis was legalized. So that, that was sort of like the, the, the biggest mistake out of the gate. Um, and then the way we were structured created incentives for us to choose companies quickly so we could pay ourselves. Um, so that was sort of like a, a big roadblock there. And I, and I still don't think that there's opportunity for many startups now. I, I think part of that, you can kind of look at like that bigger macro environment that they're operating in, which is that like one for the first like three years of cannabis, and I think it's still somewhat true is that big money would go into private to public companies or private companies that were about to be public. And because their goal was to take money and expand and like we're not going to get into the details of the whole campus industry it's going to break out of that but like it didn't work out for, for a lot of them but like they would just take any capital that was available instead of taking smart capital or capital that they needed uh, and that caused problems for them but also caused problems for the whole ecosystem in that there was no mid-stage capital or other capital um so the industry we have right now just means that like the value is created in businesses that uh are highly capital intensive, which is like cultivation, retail, production, uh, that sort of thing. And that will change over time, but that's just not, that's just not where we are. We were then or are today. Yeah, I think that's right. And then, you know, I think we didn't properly understand the implications of the regulations at the time. Um, you know, I, I think two kind of structural issues that, that we saw early on and didn't anticipate was one, I think there was this expectation that, uh, cultivators and producers, they would have all this excess space within their facilities that they would be willing to lease out to other companies to use to produce their own products. And the idea being that, you know, if you're Canopy, you have a huge facility, you've got all this excess space, you can only actually produce cannabis products to sell to the market if you make them in, if you manufacture them in a licensed space. And so Canopy would lease that space to you and you would go and create whatever it would be, uh, you know, weed infused cookie dough or, you know, a new type of vaporizer or whatever that is, you'd be able to do that within their facility. That wasn't the case. They just weren't willing to do that. It didn't make sense for them. And I think that was something we didn't see coming. And then the branding, there are no brands in cannabis. Um, you know, I think by and large people walk into a dispensary in Canada and they ask the bud tender for their advice based on certain criteria. They want to get really high or they want help sleeping or they, you know, want to just feel chill and then the bud tender will make a recommendation based on what they know. And that's how people choose their products. There's no Molson, there's no, you know, uh, smearing off of weed. It's really just based off of people's criteria and recommendations by the bud tenders. And so that really limited the amount of startup activity that could happen because in a normal CPG market, you would have a bunch of these challenger brands that emerge that try to take on the big companies like the Canopies and the Auroras and the Tilrays. And those challenger brands just couldn't exist because it was just impossible for them to build a brand. 
Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I think that's happening in some way today, but it's like in a in a different sense, and that like we're seeing, uh, you know, smaller independent uh, brands, but it's less about. But it's not about brand; it's about quality, right? So it's like we have these like micro grows who sort of are bringing like a, a higher quality product to market uh, under their own licenses in many cases. So that's sort of like I think kind of how it's developing. And if we were to do it again, like I would have employed like. Uh, the Highline beta model, which is basically partnering with these big corporates and saying like, let's identify problems and put the frameworks in place to solve those problems with like startups that are owned by, you know, us, the venture fund, them, the corporate and uh, the founders, which we would recruit. That's 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 what I would do if I uh, could do it again. Yeah, I think that the experience was good um, and it informed a lot of our thinking around business today. And kind of takes us to the peak but i think based off of seeing how the cannabis industry emerged and you know we saw the rapid growth we saw the rapid growth uh, of interest in the industry just by the attendance at our meetups and then you know we also saw the broader economic trends of you know businesses raising lots of money making big bets and you know some succeeding but the vast majority of them struggling to turn a profit at any given point and so we kind of reoriented ourselves away from that sort of thinking and more towards, well, how can we just build a, not necessarily a simple, but a very straightforward, profitable, profitable cash flow positive business that we can scale. And, you know, that was the frame in which we went into coming up with new business ideas. And so we gave back the money, I think in just before COVID, right? Like in the, in the winter of, yeah, in, in, in the winter of 2020. And so, then we were all kind of, uh, you know, trying out different things. I think we came up with a bunch of different ideas and we were pursuing them on our own between the three of us. And, uh, you know, the way that we would approach these ideas is that we would take them on and we would try them out. So we'd build a landing page, we'd send them to friends and family, we'd post them on Facebook groups and we'd see if they got any traction. If they got traction, that was a good indicator that uh, we should pursue them and focus on them. And that's kind of how the, the peak got started uh, is... Taylor uh, had the idea that we should replicate some of the newsletters in the U.S. Uh, that we were consuming. So, you know, we were reading Morning Brew and The Hustle and The Skim, and that's how we were getting a bunch of our news, and we just couldn't find a Canadian equivalent. And I think it was frustrating not to have that Canadian content in it uh, because we were just missing, or at least I was missing a bunch of stories because I wasn't frequently going on The Globe or The Financial Post or The Star to read the latest news in, in Canada. I was only getting it from these newsletters. And that was the initial idea behind the peak. And when we come up with these ideas, we do try to get them to market as quickly as possible. So in this case, we made a MailChimp account, we made a landing page, and we just got it up and up and running. Yeah, and I mean, I think uh, I think I think that was a, a good time for me to admit that like I, I didn't believe in the idea out of the gate uh, and I, I, I participated in it. And that's kind of like, again, how we sort of worked is that it's like, okay, this is sort of a, an idea this is what you can do to contribute to it. So I'm like, okay, but I don't really see it. Um, and, and my thinking at the time was that, you know, the opportunity, like that newsletters were growing, like it was a big opportunity You see it with Substack, but like the newsletters that do well are the ones that are um, like very niche focused uh, and built around personalities, which I think is true. Like those newsletters do do well, but there's clearly just this gap of like, what do you start your day with? Right. Um, and that's what I've learned, you know, over the last several months. Well, what that, changed your mind then? Seeing that people are reading it and there's traction, right? Like, um, otherwise I, I wouldn't believe it. But the fact is that people 
need something to sort of give them that quick rundown of the day. So it's like when I see that the list keeps growing, people keep reading. I'm like, okay, that's, that's the best, that's the best proof you can get. Yeah. I think that's another lesson that we've learned throughout our careers, which is when you come up with an idea like this, what you want to do is get it up and running as quickly and cheaply as possible. And then, you know, you make a bunch of assumptions with any given business and this is nothing new. This is like standard startup thinking now, but you have a bunch of assumptions and the assumptions for us were exactly like Alex said, you know, can we get people to subscribe? Will people consistently read it? Can we get growth affordably? And would advertisers be interesting in, interested in buying it? Because that's ultimately the business. So those were our core assumptions, and we kind of worked through them one by one. So you know, we sent it around to a bunch of people and saw, we tried to see if they would subscribe, and they did subscribe. And then we wanted to see if they would consistently read it, and they did. And then we started using different channels for growth, like Facebook ads, and you know that started working out. And uh, we took it one step at a time, and and I think we got to a place where we were all pretty confident that there is something here. And so we began to focus more on it. And, and that kind of takes us more to today, um, which is, you know, what do we do with this thing? Uh, but I guess, you know, we should take a second to talk about the business and, and you know, what, how we make money or how we plan to make money. And it's an advertising model. I, I think we learned a lot from the newsletters in the U.S. And the I, actually not just the newsletters in the U.S., but other businesses that we've done before, which is the most valuable thing that you can have is distribution. If you have a engaged and captive audience, there's so much that you can do with that audience that it is immensely valuable to you. And there's long-term value in it. And so that was kind of our thinking from the outset. And I think we've built an audience to an extent. I hope we hope to grow that audience, but that's mainly the, the business is that distribution. Now, what you sell to that audience, it can vary. It can be uh, ads for brands. It can be products, digital products, physical products. There's all kinds of stuff that you can sell subscriptions to this audience uh, that uh, can generate long-term revenue uh, and we think can make it not only sustainable, but profitable in, in the near, not too distant future. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think that's what's so interesting about it is that like, as we grow less, we can kind of like spin out all sorts of other things from it. And it's sort of like, there's, there's multiple directions which we can go in to build revenue. You know, one is creating other newsletters, right? So it's like we have an audience, especially because we started so general that we can start branching into more specific threads. Uh, and the nice thing is we can get like immediate feedback on that as well. So it's like we could, you know, start testing out like food or something, for example, in our newsletter, in the main newsletter, the peak, and then say, okay, wow, this is getting a lot of clicks. Uh, let's try doing something, you know, as a spin out. And then you say, okay, well, do we just spin this out? Or do we spin this out with a sponsor so it's like you know do we have like a built-in sponsor for that and go for you know the first six months already bought by somebody and you can sort of see that um I, I mean i don't know the inside of it but like uh morning brew just spun out um sidekick and like it looks like they launched with bose and like bose was like the sponsor on the landing page and they did that for a while um so i think there's sort of like this room to grow revenue uh horizontally and vertically in in, in the vertical sense like how do we add just like deeper integration into our products with with partners, right? Um, that's something we were talking about the other day is like, how do we create, like, how do we go beyond an advertising placement? And we're not totally sure yet, but we know that there's opportunity to do so. We're, we're, we're thinking through how to do that. Yeah, and this is something that we struggle with on the growth side. And I think that brands struggle with as well, which is at least in Canada, there's not nearly enough promotional channels for brands, especially direct consumer brands. There is kind of Facebook, Instagram, there's display ads, there's AdWords, 
But if you think about the number of really big podcasts or really big newsletters, there's really not a ton. On the podcast side, what I could come up with was like Canada Land. Canada Land and maybe their network are pretty big podcasts. I know Global has some. You've looked into it, Alex. I know. I was just going to say it's like a good time to talk about like the Canadian media landscape, which is I think kind of like actually core to our mission, which is that like, you know, there's i don't want to like i don't want to say it's bad because a lot of what we do is curate what they do however it's it's quite uniform and quite stodgy and i think that we have an opportunity to break it open and kind of like convert it into more kind of relatable language and work symbiotically with those current media players to generate inbounds for them but like when you look at it it's like they don't have newsletters like we have even though they've had just as much opportunity to look at what's happening south of the border and and, and adapt right and then when it comes to podcasts, it's like, it's crazy. All the podcasts are made by the big broadcasters, which is just like, it's very Canadian in the sense that like, you know, we have five big banks, we have three telecoms, but like even something as simple as podcasting, they have a, they have a chokehold on it, which is super interesting. And it's, you know, it's that it's that they have distribution. So it's like, we have to build distribution and then launch these products out from it because you know otherwise yeah it's it's a it's a non-starter and i think that's sort of another opportunity for us is that like and again this is like this is dreaming ahead it's like we can be a network for other podcasts too right whereas in the states like you have these huge podcast companies that started on their own and then are bought by spotify and whatnot whereas here it's all network driven yeah like it's like i said it's a big challenge for us you know we want we found that our biggest growth channel if we want to pay is to advertise in other newsletters and mm-hmm. if we were in the U.S., if we were Morning Brew, there's many different ways to do that because there's, you know, now there's thousands of substacks that they could go to that have predominantly U.S. audiences that they could advertise in and would get a, a great conversion. We just don't have that. I think, you know, we looked up on substack. There's maybe 20 active Canadian-focused substack newsletters, uh, and that's it. And on the podcast front, same thing. It's all the broadcasters, and they do pretty average content. And so, you know, the media models are shifting dramatically down south. You know, you have the New York Times with this winner takes all mentality. You know, the New York Times now has more subscribers in L.A. than the L.A. Times does. And I think that's their model. You've got this morning brew hustle skim model, which is kind of what we most align ourselves with, which is email first. So you own that audience, you build up massive distribution, and then you break that out into different channels and products and you've got local news models, which is you focus on hyper-local news and you provide value to people with news that they can use. There's all these different models emerging in the U.S. that just haven't come up here yet. There, there is a delay. And I, don't, I think it's inevitable that they will come up here. And we know of people who are trying to, to bring them and, and, and move that forward. But it's, just, it's not here yet. And so I think we're, a bit, we're still a bit early on this. And it's funny because I think every few months there's some type of story about how email is dead. Uh, but I think email is probably more interesting now than ever before. Um, and so that's kind of the observation we thought. Yeah. Um, maybe I, I feel like we should also address while we're having this conversation, talking about down South is like, talk about morning brew. Like, I think we should talk about that. Like we, we have no, like we're not holding back, but we looked at morning brew and said, let's just copy this. Right. Like, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, we need it here. So let's do it. Right. Yeah, like, uh, you know, it's, uh, they just don't have Canadian content. And we know that they have a lot of Canadian readers. We were some of them. And uh, Canadians want Canadian content. You live here, you want to know what's going on. 
and you want to know what's happening with the businesses here and the economy and we provide that and i think we have a different tone to them or a slightly different tone to them but obviously the look and feel of both the landing page and the email is very similar to morning brew and, and we've been heavily inspired by them and you know for what it's worth they just got acquired by business insider for 70 million dollars and the calculation that we're trying to make uh is if we can be you know canada's 30 million people the us is 300 million people so we're a tenth of the size of the us they had 2 million subscribers upon acquisition. Uh, you know, if we take a 10th of that, you know, what are we valued at that point? And I think I'm not sure. And I think that we actually will have to have a different model than morning brew because of the limitations on scale here. I think when you have such a big country and a big potential audience, you can focus on one publication and get it really, really big before you break off into other verticals. And I think that we actually might have to accelerate that. Uh, faster than Morning Brew did because we are a, a bit capped on scale. Yeah, I, I think that's true. But like, it's like, it's both like, a, 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 it's also an opportunity, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's we, there's so, the, the, the playing field is clear here, right? So it's like, we're able to jump into different categories pretty quickly. Um, obviously there's risk to do, like we might not know the category, like there's all sorts of things that can cause us to stumble, but like, there's not a lot of competition. And again, once we have, this platform we have this platform now of like of thousands and thousands of readers who probably fall into all these other categories too we do have a, a huge advantage on we probably i mean have but didn't have in the same way that we do with like a very clear playing field why do you think the star or the globe can't do what we're doing you know like i, I don't have a good question a good answer to that i mean like i've never worked in a business like that so it's like i don't i don't really understand the internal culture um but like, I imagine it's just like bureaucratic uh, kind of log jam there. And I think it also, it's like, we do have an advantage working outside of the newspaper and now we can, they can only use their own stories, right? Sure. Whereas we can use whatever we want. Um, we also have, we're not bound. And I want to say bound by like news judgment. and apply a different type of news judgment than they apply. So it's like, if you're the star or the globe, you have, they, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know, but they're probably looking and saying, okay, which stories do I choose from this? What are my considerations of balance, right? Um, and they probably have to say, we need a story from here. We need a story from here. We need, and it just gets too complicated. Whereas we say, we, who are our readers? Let's give them the stories they want. Um, so the globe and the star and, and the post, they, they're trying to be everything for a large group. Whereas I think we sort of like know who our readers are. Um, and kind of zero in on that. I think a big mistake that the bigger publishers make is that they try to co-opt the content that they publish online and in the paper into a newsletter format. And it's a different channel and you have to treat it differently. The content has to be digestible. It has to be in a different tone. I think it has to be more casual. And they, they really struggle to do that. If you read the Globe's newsletters, they really just do take excerpts from their news stories and they publish them into a newsletter and it's too long. It's kind of too complicated and it's definitely not digestible. And it's definitely not casual. And I think that's a big mistake that they made. And that's an advantage of being an email first publication is that we put a lot of thought into how do we take the stories that they publish and then translate them into a channel that is faster and needs to be more accessible than whatever they're putting out online. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I'm, I, I'd be curious about like the internal culture there of just like, okay, first of all, who, what's the motivations of the person in those emails? Like, is it their main job or is it like a, a function that they have to do, which is just clipping 
the portion of an article. And then secondly, I, again, I don't know this, but I'd be curious to know is like, is there a tension when a newsletter writer has to rewrite a journalist in the same office? Sure. Like, like what that dynamic is, I'd be very curious to know more about. So I guess we should talk a bit about our learnings over the past four months, five months now of doing the peak. Um, you know, I think for us, uh, some of the ways that we've grown and been surprised by how we grow is one, yeah, like for like advertising. So newsletter advertising was very, has been very effective. We ran this campus ambassador program. We still run it and that has been partially successful. And I think that we can talk a bit about the challenges there. The idea being that we think that this newsletter is perfect. If you're a university business student, it is written for you in a tone that you can understand. We only write stories that are useful and interesting to you. It, it, the whole newsletter is geared towards that audience. And so it was a natural fit. And what Morning Brew did in the US, and I think what we tried to replicate here was we would get ambassadors on campus to go out there and promote the email for us. And in return, we would give them networking opportunities and we would invite them to a community and we'd give them merch. And I think it's been really effective if you get the right people. The big challenge for us is finding the right people. So we've got an excellent team at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, and they've referred 100 plus people to the newsletter and 100 plus high quality readers. But uh, one that does kind of teeter out after a few weeks, and it's not their fault. It's just they've kind of maxed out their network and their reach. And two, it's really hard to find people as engaged and motivated as them. And I think if universities, this sounds creepy, but if universities were open, I think it'd be a lot easier because we could actually go on campus and hand out flyers and, and use different tactics. But uh, online is is tough and we're still trying to figure out a way to find those people to scale that. And so those are the two growth tactics that I've been most surprised. Uh, and then on the advertising front, you know, I think we found, we did validate our core assumption, which is that brands and publishers are looking for new channels to advertise on and, and we provide them one that's interesting and within their target audience. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing is like the referral program. I mean, if you hear sort of any other newsletter talk about how they've, they've grown is because of their referral program. Um, and I think it's been working for us. I think we're sort of, uh, it's still early on and we just did, and we're kind of still in the, the, the process of doing our sort of final end of year 10,000 person drive. Um, and you know, it's the jury's out on how effective that is. I think we need to dive into the numbers further and sort of see where we got, but we did, we did grow a lot organically over the last couple of weeks. Um, but I think sort of like the most interesting finding is just, it's sort of obvious is that like super spreaders, right? I mean, a few people have contributed the largest growth. Like, you know, one person sends an email to their own just, you know, personal list. And that is a couple hundred signups. Somebody one person with, you know, same amount of LinkedIn connections will post on LinkedIn versus another person. And because they just have some sort of cachet to them that people trust what they say. Um, so that's, that's super interesting. I think something that we've, we've talked about is how do we zero in on those people? How do I, how do we identify those people and how do we motivate those people? Um, my assumption is that people like that are, are motivated to share it. Like that's why they're super spreaders because they have a, you know, a reputation for sharing good things. Uh, so people trust the recommendations, but I think that's something that, that we need to build on. And then I think the other kind of piece we need to build on is like, how do we, how do we kind of build down on our referral program? So it's like, how do we go from one to one to then the next one? 
to one, right? So it's like, how do we go get, get people who are referred to start referring themselves? And again, that's sort of a big goal for the new year, I think, is how do we, how do we optimize that? Yeah, and we can talk about that 12 Days of Peakmas campaign that we just ran, because yeah. I think it was a bit controversial. Um, <laughs> you know, I think the idea behind it was we come from politics, and if you're in politics and you're doing a donation drive, let's say, or if you're a charity at a not-for-profit, you make it really personal um, and you create urgency. And those are the two main characteristics of any good donor campaign. And uh, that's what we tried to do here. Uh, and I think the jury is out, like you said, if it worked. I think like we did see a growth in referrals. We saw, yeah. and this is the metric that matters to us the most, which is we don't, super spreaders are really good, but if a bunch of people are referring a few people, one, that's good validation that we're creating good content that people like that they want to share. And two, as we scale, that scales as well. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, I, I think it was, Good. And it's one of those things where my gut instinct tells me that just like in politics, people hated those emails where they're like, urgent, we need, you know, $5,000 to stop Joe Biden from stealing the election today. Uh, and I know people find those emails super annoying, but they do work. And this is kind of going back to what we were talking about, which is that that's, you know, there, there is definitely a balance there between brand and between conversion and you know we're still trying to find that balance but it was an interesting thing to test and i think we'll probably lay off on that for a bit and we might return back to it later on to see if we can do it better at scale yeah we're not gonna we're not gonna do it all the time um but i think that like the numbers speak for themselves like it did grow our list and we didn't it didn't result in a ton of churn it's just a question is like how do we improve on it i think it's a better way to put it like it, it, yeah. we do know it worked the jury's out on how to do it better yeah um, okay, well, let's take a second. We can just talk about the future and where we see things uh, going. Sure. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges that we've had over the past six months is figuring out how to take this to the next level. And media companies, what we've learned is that media companies, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg situation, which is for our model to work, we need to have growth. We need to have scale. So if we want to sell ads, we sell ads, and I'll just say the pricing, it's $50 per 1,000 opens. And so we are dependent upon more people opening the email to make more money. And right now we're getting about you know, 2,200, 2,300 opens per day. And so we can make about $100 per email if we sell out on, this, uh, on the takeover spot. And that's good, but it's obviously not enough for us to work on it full time. It's obviously not enough to finance acquisition that we want to ramp up over the next six months. And so it was a question of, do we keep going down this path, which we could and truly bootstrap it? Uh, uh, or do we go out there and we raise money? And the bootstrapping path, it takes a lot longer. We could have gotten it to a place where uh, we were sustainable and ultimately were profitable, but it would just take a long time. Or we could finance, raise money today, and invest heavily into the business um, and get to profitability faster. But there is more of a risk there because, one, we're giving away more of the company, and two, we're taking other people's money. I don't know, Alex, how you thought about it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think kind of like the big consideration for us was like, are we going to keep doing it, right? So it's like, if we weren't making money, we we're going to have to have other jobs. <laughs> That's how the economy works, right? So... I think kind of like what flipped the switch for us was people came to us and asked if they could invest in us um, people and people we knew and people we trusted. So that sort of got the conversation 
going. Um, and, and sort of a step back too is like, I think Brett, you said the other day that like the pandemic actually made this possible in the first place, because if we weren't stuck at home all the time, we wouldn't have had the discipline to write this every day. So going forward when, you know, hopefully the pandemic will be over, uh, and we also will need jobs. Like, you know, we, 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 we knew that we couldn't do this full time and we, we kind of were like, okay, how does, is it going to continue? And I think that was sort of like where my gut check was, was like, eh, this is going to end up falling apart if we don't do that. So I think that kind of like set us on that path. And then, but, but we're still hesitant to do it because of our experience with money last time. And with Lee Ford, with raising money, like it was a good, it was a good experience overall is like learning. And also, I mean, like all of our investors were great. Like let's, let's not kind of say anything about that, but like there is a pressure that comes with taking people's money. And especially when you don't make them more money, uh, it, it doesn't feel good. Um, but also we made a decision in that business to give our investors, or at least a core group of our investors, like a lot of power in the business. And they were great. They were patient, all of that. But it was a mistake because it was our business and we should have had ultimate control over it. Um, so we were very, very wary to take money because we didn't want to replicate that. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, considering all the different factors, we did kind of come up with terms that we wanted to raise on. And so we wanted to raise $300,000 and we we're going to do it on a safe note. And so the way these work is that you take investments almost as debt, but they convert to equity upon your next financing round. So that could either be an exit or it could be uh, a series A. This was kind of our, our seed round. And uh, we wanted to cap that note at $1.5 million. So the way that works is that if you invested in this $300,000 round, no matter what we raise at on the next round or what we exit at, your money will will uh, convert at that $1.5 million valuation. So if we raise over that, it's only upside for you from there. And if we raise under it, then you get more equity uh, proportional to how much you invested. So those are the terms that we wanted to raise on. How we kind of want to, uh, how we kind of approach fundraising is, and I think this is a good piece of advice for anyone who is looking to start something is you really do need to have a network prior to fundraising for anything. And, you know, we're lucky enough to have a number of people in our lives that, you know, uh, support us and what we do, um, you know, who think we're uh, okay or good operators. And so, uh, you know, we were able to go to them and get a few early commitments or some introductions to other people. And that's kind of how you fundraise is you get introduced to other people, you talk to them and then you raise from them and so on and so forth. And I think it's worth noting without saying names that like, so the two people who approached us to invest in us before we, before we even said we were going to invest or take investment were both two people who invested in Lee Ford and whose money we may or may not return um two people who we've known for a long time one of them was basically like my first real boss and the other i believe was brett's boss at one point am i right about that or kind of yeah maybe yeah, yeah. so it's like so it's like it matters who you meet early on and continue to build trust with them and uh, people will kind of like you know value that uh and bet on you in the long run and you know it's a very good feeling and a good good kind of like uh I'm blanking for words, but it's a, they have faith in you when um, they invest in you once, you don't do that well with it. And then they come to you and say, I want to invest again. So that's a, a very positive way to look at it. Yeah, uh, it really does mean a lot. Um, 
And like Alex said, you know, there is, I think, definitely a, a lot of pressure when you raise money. Um, I think that pressure can be good, um, but it's pressure nonetheless. And, and I agree with Alex. That was probably our biggest hesitation with raising again, is that we felt that pressure before it lay forward. And we weren't sure if we wanted to do that over again. And we definitely weren't sure if we wanted to give away the same amount of control that we did in, in the last business. Um, and I think we did a good job. And so we're about, I, I'd say, halfway, probably more than halfway through raising uh, this round. I think we've done a good job at maintaining control and giving away the amount of equity that we feel comfortable with and also raising enough capital for uh, us to really accelerate our growth. And so I'm excited about it. We've got one investor in particular that wrote uh, a significant check um, that we're really excited about and I think will be a good partner for us moving forward. But look, I think it's tough. Um, you know, I'm trying to think about this from if you were uh, another person trying to do this and you didn't have a network and you were going out there trying to pitch VCs on a media business or a newsletter to raise on, I think it'd be very challenging. I think it does help that Morning Brew just exited for $70 million, but I think it'd be really tough otherwise. And this goes back to just what we said. You have to know people. You have to have a network before doing this stuff, especially if you have a more unique idea because people are going to bet on you the founder, the operator, they're not going to bet on the idea so much. And you need to have people in your world that have capital to invest who trust you. But I, but I think I think what's important about this is it's not like, oh, you just have to have a network. You can build a network. Like we sure. both built the network. It's, these aren't people who are like family friends of ours. Like these are our parents. Like it's, it's we both, you know, individually, and that's how we came across each other as well, set out to build a network by volunteering for things, you know, going to events, that sort of stuff. Right. And like in the case of Lee Ford, we literally built a network. Like we, we, that's where our business started there. Right. So it's like anyone can do it. Uh, you just have to lay a lot of groundwork uh, to make it happen. Yeah. And that's something else I'd say too, which is you should be selective about who your investors are, not only because, you know, they're going to be your partners in the business, but also, and I hear, I listen to how I built this, the podcast, and I hear about people raising from, they're like immediate family and like very close friends who might not be in a position to invest. And I think that's very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and so it advise like, against that. They really like know they can lose the money. Like, exactly. like you're probably going to lose this money. Like yeah. that's the only way you can do it. And I've never taken money from someone like I'm really close with. Um, yeah, exactly. Somebody who's giving me the money might disagree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that's kind of where we're at on the fundraising front. We're really excited about it. I think, you know, once we get that cash in the bank, we can really start to you know, spend a significant amount on acquisition, really start to grow this thing. We can, we can hire a writer, uh, we can invest in, in sales, and I think we can start to hopefully get to sustainability by the end of 2021 and then get to profitability soon after. So I'm, I'm really excited about the direction of the business. And I think this puts us on a really good course. Yeah, as am I. I mean, I think 2021 is going to be a good year for us. Um, I think we're going to grow really quickly. Uh, and we're going to launch some new partnerships and some new verticals even, maybe. We'll see. Yeah. And so let's just talk quickly about a few ideas that we had. Uh, yeah. And uh, for kind of uh, new initiatives for the peak. So one mm -hmm. is Clubhouse. So Clubhouse, yeah. for those of you who don't know, it's this very Silicon Valley-esque 
um, app where you go on and you can jump into live chat rooms and it's all audio. So you'll have moderators of that room and you'll have participants and you'll talk about a certain topic and you can put your hand up and they can call on you and you can contribute to that. It's kind of like a live podcast. There is no recording of it. And I think it's against their terms to publish any transcript or to save it and publish it as a podcast. So it really is live. And it's become very popular in Silicon Valley. Um, and, you know, we both jumped on it over the past week. I think there's, I think it's a really interesting platform. It, right now it's in private beta, so you have to be invited to participate. But there really is a true community forming around it. And I think it'd be a great way to engage with our audience. Uh, and by getting in early, I think we can establish a consistent audience in a show and hone that format. And then once it becomes public, we can use the newsletter to drive a bunch of new people to sign up and participate themselves. That's my thinking around Clubhouse. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I think it's going to be interesting using Clubhouse, but I think like to sort of like zoom out, as we say, um, you know, I think our goal is to create sort of like a second channel for building personality around the newsletter, right? So it's like, I think the, our idea is that, you know, you'll want to hear from us more <laughs> and hear us talk about the news and have different guests on and have that conversation. So it's like, I think Clubhouse is probably the platform for that, but one way or the other, we're going to, we're going to try to do more of this, whether it's talking about behind the scenes or, or what's in the newsletter uh, more often. And the idea is to be more engaging. Well, <laughs> if that's worth yeah. And I think yeah. like it's one to be more engaging, uh, but two, yeah. I think it's a good moat for us. So sure. there's nothing stopping anyone from doing what we do. Like, I think it's not super easy, but you know, if you commit yourself to it, uh, you learn the tone, you know, you can, uh, you're disciplined enough to write it every day. You could easily write this and, and probably grow it pretty quickly. Um, I think the moat that we're trying to build is through personality. And this is the same moat that other media organizations use too. Like Barstool Sports, this is their, this is their whole business is personality. The New York Times is increasingly moving in that direction as well. They're bringing on Ezra Klein and they're bringing on, uh, you know, Liz Brunig and all kinds of people, personalities online. And well, Michael Barbero, they didn't just Michael bring Barbero, on, like, right? Yeah, their most valuable asset. I mean, exactly, and that's driving a lot of subscriber growth for them because these people yeah. have big audiences now online that follow them and they want to read their stuff, and so they subscribe to the New York Times, so they have access to it. And I think that we are trying to follow a similar trajectory because that just gives us more cushion. Uh, I do expect that there will be lots of other people that try to do this. Uh, we know there will be lots of other people who try to do this. Um, and so for us, it's a matter of what are our big differentiators? And I think this is, this is one of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's sort of another initiative on that, in that, in that, in that area is, uh, our Slack, our online community too, which we, we started, but we, we weren't very intentional with. Um, so in the new year, we're going to, we're going to be more intentional about that and create sort of more community in there too. And, uh, we'll, we'll be out with rules on how you can join, uh, in the new year. Yeah. Community, I think is also key. Um, and then the, you know, the podcast, we've been experimenting with different formats. We have the peak weekly right now where we summarize the top three business stories of the week in 10 minutes or less. I think it's good. People like it, but how to scale that really tough. The, the primary channel for scaling a podcast is guests. So you bring a guest on, they tweet about the podcast they were just on their audience listens to that podcast. And if they like it, they'll subscribe and listen to other episodes. If it's just me talking about the news, there's no guests. So that growth channel is gone. Uh, and what we're struggling with is, well, how do you grow the podcast then? And so 
uh, we were playing around with different formats. We're trying different things out, but it's uh, it's really tough. But we do want to have a regular podcast that we produce because we think that's a good channel as well and a good complement to the newsletter. Yeah, no, for sure. Okay, well, look, I think this is uh, 50 minutes, and uh, this Riverside FM that we're recording on, it has an hour limit for your first recording uh, before you have to pay, and I don't want to pay. And so I think we're going to hit that. We're going to just about hit that hour. Um, look, I thought this was great. I think we probably should do this more often. I don't know what the cadence yeah. should be. Uh, I guess we'll figure it out. But, uh, but Alex, thank you for joining me, as always. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed this and would love your feedback. If you got any feedback, uh, send it to us. Hello at readthepeak.com.